0: Welcome back to the Illinois Agronomy Update. I'm your host, Troy Kazire, with Hertz Farm Management here in Geneseo, Illinois. And uh, today we have Devin Nichols with us. Devin is a corn breeder with uh, Wiffles Hybrids, uh, works out of the Springfield area. Devin, thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Troy. I appreciate the invite. Look forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is going to be a a very interesting conversation. And and, uh, before we get into that, I guess, uh, why don't you take a couple minutes and tell us a little bit about your background and, uh, and a little bit about your role there at, at, uh, at Wiffles and, you know, kind of geography you cover and what your main responsibilities are.
1: Sure. So, uh, to, to, to put it in breeding terms, I always, uh, I describe myself as a, as an Illinois inbred. Um, so I'm, I'm born and raised in, in central Illinois. Um, did my, all, all of my, uh, college degrees were from university of Illinois. So I did a uh, bachelor's master's and PhD at university of Illinois, um, studying in, in soybean breeding for my master's and then uh, corn breeding for my PhD. Um, after that I, I took a job with one of the the big industry companies, spent a couple years out in Nebraska and then uh, was back here in the Springfield area for that company for about um, a decade and then uh, in the last couple years uh, made the transition and joined Wiffles as a as a corn breeder and have uh, been here since January of, of 21. Uh, as you said I am officed um, in Springfield, Illinois so For those who are not familiar with Wiffles, we're a uh, corn belt focused company. So we only sell corn and we uh, primarily sell corn in the central corn belt. So our sales footprint is uh, uh, most of Illinois, pretty much all of Iowa, and then uh, the southern parts of uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and a little bit into southeastern South Dakota. Um, So for me, being based in Springfield, I I obviously would focus on the the southern part of that um, sales footprint. And. Uh, most of my breeding projects are, are southern focused, so uh, maybe 108 RM plus. Um, and, and that's where I support uh, our commercial products as well is more in that, that southern geography. Um, with the caveat that with Wiffles being a, a mid-sized company that pretty much all of the breeders um, look at and support the entire sales footprint to some extent. But certainly my focus being located in the southern part of the geography is, is more that Southern, uh, flair.
0: Okay. Very good. Um, and yeah, it's that kind of that insight that, that we want to really tap into today. When we, when we talk about corn breeding and, and, uh, uh, I guess to start off with let's, let's kind of, kind of delve into a, a little bit of the history. And as we were, we were talking earlier, this really could be a whole podcast episode in itself, but, but, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, Let's let's talk about the history of corn breeding and 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 how it's uh, we'll we'll get to how it's evolved and some of the, the newer tools in a bit here. But but let's kind of go back to the beginning and, and and start there. Talk a little bit about that history.
1: Yeah, sure. I can I can give the uh, the quick nickel tour, and then if there's anything you want to uh, delve into a little bit more more deeply, uh, for sure, stop me and, and let me know. Um, but I I kind of like to think about the the progression of breeding. As the breeding is often described as uh, both an art and a science, so a combination of those disciplines. And I think when I think about the history, uh, I think about how it's evolved over time from being primarily an art or maybe all art (laughs) thousands of years ago up to today, where it's um, much more of a science, but uh, still a little bit of art left in it, um, at least in the opinion of uh, uh, of myself and some other breeders out in the field um, but but so really the the history of corn breeding started thousands of years ago in in mexico and uh central america with the domestication of of by um, farmers who were growing teosinte, which is the accepted wild relative of corn looks uh the the plant type looks somewhat like corn i'm, I'm sure you've seen it from uh <laughs> growing some demo, historical demos in the past um kind of a looks like a, a, a wild grass with a little bit of corn characteristics to it. Um, so really those those farmers who were uh, growing teosinte, uh, just selecting naturally occurring mutants that were slightly better productivity characteristics, had more seed per plant and um, larger seed produce more yield, um, saving those seed, planting them the next year, that continued for thousands of years and wild teosinte became um, what we, now know as corn with a single ear and a single tassel and um, much uh, more amenable to the, the types of agriculture you see now where we're growing um, single crops in large fields and, and doing mechanical harvest. Um, and, and really, I would say that, uh, yeah, many, many cycles of that to, to domesticate corn um, and then really a long period of just uh, farmers who were hand planting, hand harvesting, selecting the best ears. Um, they were popular at fairs in the past were um, co- e- uh, corn ear competitions. So which which ears looked the best and those that won the competition were what farmers wanted to plant the next year. And so that seed would um, be saved. And it was really just an open, pop, open uh, pollinated uh, population development. So sort of a mass selection. Um, so a little bit more science. I mean, at least maybe getting out of, a weigh bucket and weigh in how much is produced on one variety versus the other. And, but uh, still just a lot of art to it on what looks the best and what uh, a farmer perceives is, is going to be more productive. Um, and then really, I think the, the big in, inflection point was um, in the early 1900s. So around the 1920s um, there were some um, students and, and faculty at some of the land grant universities who um, had started selfing out inbreds and, and had the idea of uh producing hybrids out of those inbreds and, um, and, and really discovered the, the hybrid vigor that we really take advantage of today in our corn production systems where um, you self out and get pure breeding inbred lines. Those are, uh, have pretty poor yield and, and pretty poor um, performance overall. But if you cross two of those that are unrelated, you get uh, hybrid vigor. So the, the offspring performs much better, yields much higher, has better standability um than the inbred parents um, and that's why we grow hybrid corn today and so really starting ar- around the 1920s that's where a lot of uh, like i said uh, folks at uh, some of the land-grant universities as well as uh um, private industry started getting involved pretty quickly thereafter in uh, inbred development and, and hybrid development and went through a, a really rapid um improvement phase um Starting, like I said, around the 1920s, really accelerating in the 1940s around World War II. That's when the, the really broad scale adoption of, of hybrid corn occurred to uh, um, uh, that, that we really see. I, I, I'm sure you've seen it, Troy, but uh, <laughs> and if this was visual, we could show the old. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of an obligatory slide for a corn breeder to present with the uh, genetic gain over time and showing those inflection points of very little improvement for years and years and years and then starting to trend up in the twenties. And then um, the forties trends up even more, you get from double crosses to single crosses, that line gets even steeper. And then when you get to the nineties and start adding uh, some biotech traits, it uh, accelerates even more and gets us to where, where we are today with uh, the yields that farmers see. i well,
0: I'm just, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts. I've, I've often wondered about this and I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. You know, when you look at, when you look at, for example, the the average corn yield from the late 1800s, and I don't know that it was really tracked before that, but, you know, there's about a 50-year span where where yields were essentially flat and maybe even trended slightly down. Um, and, and I know there's only so much you can do when you're self-pollinating, right? You can't really make any step changes, but, you know, how much of that do you think was was, you talked about big ear selection, you know, how much of that do you think was just ears getting selected from the outside edge of the field and, and not really any true genetic gain, um, uh, you, you know, over, over some of that time.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think that is a lot of it. And that's, that's where that art versus science comes in is when, when you have farmers, uh, grower, <laughs> farmer growers who are, um, purely using art, selecting the ears that that are are the biggest, yeah, there can be a lot of, um, yeah, selecting the big ears from the edge of the field is not going to necessarily translate, we know now, um, to yield when you get to the middle of the field where there's higher densities and more competition. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's, that's a big part of it that um, a lot of our genetic gain didn't really start to pick up until we started um, doing replicated field trials where we're testing multiple products in a field in a controlled setting at the same population, same management practices, um, collecting the, in in the early days, hand harvesting the ears off of each of those and weighing them. Now we have combines that um, we mechanically harvest plots with a plot combine and weigh them and get uh, other moisture and test weight measurements right on the machine that we use for advancements today. Uh, I, I really, a lot of, the technology that's, that's made genetic gain possible or those kind of mechanical technologies to give us, um, a better way to, to collect that data and, and be more scientific and, um, better at making those decisions versus just this year looks nice. So I'm going to select it and pass it on to my neighbors. Sure. Sure.
0: And, you know, this is a topic, it can, it can get fairly complex and especially without visuals, but if you can kind of so i think most everybody listening knows that you know well let me let me back up you you talked about okay so so hybrids really kind of started coming into play in in the late 1920s um and i think everybody listening knows that that the way you make a hybrid is you cross two two different inbreds um but but if we can let's let's maybe go just a little bit deeper what you know, we talk about inbreds and, and hybrid. What exactly makes a plant an inbred? What are we really talking about there uh, when, when we say the, that this plant is an inbred?
1: Uh, right. So it, it just means it's it's true breeding. So it's 100% homozygous. It has um, two copies of the same allele at every genetic locus. So it's, it's uh, basically you. if you self-pollinate it, you're producing identical offspring that will look and act the same cycle after cycle. And the way that's different from now, where um, starting next week, that's what I'll be spending the next month doing is self-pollinating um, inbreds in my in my nursery um, here by Springfield. And they'll be doing the same thing in Geneseo um, to um, one, to inbreed. So if we if we recombine, take two existing parents, we cross them We produce a new segregating population where every plant is going to be a slightly different combination of those two parents. Just like if uh, you're a parent and you have multiple children, your children are (laughs) different, unique combinations of uh, you and your spouse. Um, We do the same with corn. We cross the two parents together. We generate large populations um, of hundreds of offspring. Um, Then we have to, uh, initially those will be segregating, so it means they have uh, different alleles uh, combinations at at the different uh, genetic uh, loci and so then we self-pollinate them for multiple generations where we um, manually move the pollen from the tassel of a plant to the silk of the same plant um, over five, six, seven generations of selfing. We get that so it's a true breeding inbred line where we've now fixed the genetics at every locus. So. Um, if you self-pollinate it, you get the same thing back time after time. Um, there are some technologies, so doubled haploids, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, maybe not the the listeners. Um, (laughs) I don't know as I want to go into the super detail of what that is, but it's, it's basically a shortcut, um, way to get, um, immediately to a, a true breeding inbred line versus having to go through all those generations of selfing. Um, and we use, uh. Uh, it's an inducer line that only um, when you use it as a pollinator, it produces kernels that'll grow, but they're haploid, meaning they only get genetic material from the, the female. Um, so then you have mm-hmm. to double those chromosomes. So we apply a chemical to those kernels to get that, uh, to get those chromosomes to double. So you get back to a, a fertile inbred, but since you're doubling, um, just making copies of the chromosomes that are there, you're immediately um, an inbred line. And, and so that's, that's a process that's, been used for uh, a couple decades now in, in corn breeding and, and the breeding of other crops to kind of short circuit that need to uh, self down to get inbreds. Um, either way you go about it, that's the goal is to go to to get a, a true breeding inbred that then you can um, use to produce hybrids and use to make process. And so since it's pure breeding, if you cross it to another parent, as we do in uh, hybrid seed production, you're going to get F1 progeny that uh, have one set of chromosomes from the male, one set from the female there, every plant in the field is going to be identical. It's going to look the same, act the same, um, be more amenable to um, mechanical planting and harvesting and um, uh, the, the management we give it these days. Um, how that differs from pre 1920s when we were um, growing open pollinated varieties and improving those open pollinated varieties, um, there was no controlled pollination in those. so. Um, you had different varieties that were genetically different, but they weren't pure breeding, so there weren't. Um, if you did a genetic analysis of those, every plant in those in a field of an OPV uh, open pollinated variety could be slightly different than its neighbor. Um, and so, when those are pollinating openly, you're you're still mixing the genetic sum. Um, so, if you took two different openated pollinated open pollinated varieties, crossed them together, you would still get a um, you wouldn't get a hybrid, but you'd get a different open ed- open pollinated variety where you'd still have variability among the plants. Yeah, those that makes sense. Sure.
0: Well, yeah. Those open pollinated varieties. Yeah. You'd have different plant heights, different ear heights, uh, even maybe different pollination times all through the same field. Uh, a lot of, a lot of variability, um, correct.
1: And yeah, which you could get by with when you were hand harvesting or ear picking and drying ears, but, uh, not, not near as well. If you're uh, planning to machine harvest with a combine if you've got super variable plant near heights and different maturities and flowering within the plot that's going to cause you some trouble so uh, yep exactly it was kind of went hand in hand the improvements in breeding and and uh pure breeding high inbreds and hybrids with uh, um advancement of the um equipment we use on the farm as well
0: sure so yeah you've got you know um and And again for for the listeners that maybe don't have quite as much background in some of this, you know every just like us, you know, a corn plant has it every every one of its genes exists in pairs, one from the you know male parent, one from the female parent and and the goal is to get and in, and in, in, if you're talking about an inbred, we want to get, like you said, both of those genes in that pair the same. We call that homozygous, and the way you get there self-pollinate it for multiple generations, you get a plant that all the gene pairs are the same, 100% homozygous, that's an inbred. Cross it with a different inbred, and you have a plant that's 100% heterozygous. In other words, right, each one of those gene pairs has two different genes in it, and and that's what we call a hybrid. Um, yep. And you exactly. mentioned hybrid vigor, you know, those that that we tend to see sort of a a synergy or an amplification of the good traits and and so you know uh, hybrids tend to be much more productive and and healthier and and the, their their good traits are, are better than really both of the parents combined um so you know you mentioned and kind of in the in the early stages of that in the 20s you mentioned double cross hybrids and and now everything we grow really is a single cross hybrid so what's the what's the difference there and and why did why did we make that change
1: yeah so so the difference is with today's single cross hybrids we just take um one male inbred one female inbred we plant them in a production field let the male pollinate the female harvest the seed off the the female rows, and that's the the f1 hybrid that that we're selling and farmers are planting um in the early days um the inbred lines themselves were um not improved enough to make that possible right so the female inbred line didn't yield enough to make it um, feasible to produce enough seed off of that single female inbred to be able to harvest and and sell to farmers and to have enough seed for farmers to plant and so um, we had double cross hybrids where um, you would make an initial cross of um, two maybe somewhat related but different female lines to produce an F1 and then you would use a different pollen parent, um, whether it's a, a, a single male that's then pollinating that F1 uh, female to produce the, the seed or um, even a, a four way where you are doing the same on the male side to produce a slightly more vigorous male um, F1 to pollinate the female F1. So um, that, that's the double cross where you are having to, to make two, ge- two generations of crosses um, and, and really early on it was done just because of the, the first inbreds were um, not improved enough to make them um, able to produce enough seed without doing that extra step. And then once we had um, female and male inbreds that had been improved multiple generations and the female inbreds were good enough seed parents, you could use them directly. And the, the males were produced enough pollen and were vigorous enough, vigorous enough. You could use them. Um, they, they showed to be much more, productive in, in hybrids to do the single cross versus double cross. Um, so really once we got improved inbreds, um, the industry shifted to single cross hybrids. But, but That's sort of the history is at, at first it was a need just because the, the first inbreds were not, not so awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, Right. Yes. Yeah, it's just it's really strictly, yeah. uh, like you said, a seed production issue. Um, so, you know, that, we, 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 you know, that, that kind of gets us to, to where we're at to, to a certain degree. Uh, Obviously we're leaving a lot out, but, but there's only so much you can do in a podcast. So you mentioned, you know, one of the tools that we're using currently, uh, double haploids. and, And again, we won't go into the weeds there. That's, that's kind of a complicated process, but the, you know, the, the bullet point version, like you said, it is a shortcut uh, that that self-pollination to create an inbred historically takes about seven generations with double haploid. We have a way to shortcut that and and create that that homozygous inbred in in what, two to three generations. Right. Uh, yeah really, you know, really cuts that process down. It's not, not necessarily, it's not that you're getting any better hybrids out. You're just getting them much more quickly. Uh, and you're, you're able to, to, to sort of, you know, uh, create those genetic gains much more quickly than, than before. Um, so what, what are some of the other tools that you're, you know, that you're using currently and, and, you know, what are, what's, what's kind of some of the more modern take on, on how corn breeding takes place now?
1: yeah so so i I'd, I'd say there's a couple maybe big areas where we have new tools that are helping. Um, I, I, the first one is is uh, probably a lot of the same tools that that farmers are using now that they wouldn't have used a couple decades ago um, to help them with their process th- processes, things like GPS on planters. so we're using GPS now to um, plant plots to to instead of having a cable out there to um, trip the cut, trip the planter and, and tell it when to start planting the next variety um, uh, so that, that helps us have better more efficient testing be able to plant more plots because it's it's saving time and takes fewer people to plant um, Same with data collection so I, I know a lot of growers now are using drones or UAVs UASs uh, whatever term we want to use for them um, We're using those in, in breeding too so um, we can use those to collect um, data on our yield trial fields. So we're able to collect more data than we have in the past, um, and maybe more, um, objective data. So if we can measure a trait with uh, a drone via imagery that we used to measure visually, um, or have crews go through the field and do stand counts or, um, in our, uh, hybrid vigor, um, uh, early season vigor notes, something like that. It's it's pretty subjective, a different person might rate it differently. Um, if you can do that um, with a drone, use imagery and then the extract data from those uh, image images, you can do it more objectively. So I, I, I'd say that whole kind of bucket of uh, mechanical improvements, new technologies that have allowed us to improve our the amount of data we collect and then improve the quality of that data. Um, uh, there's a, an old saying in breeding that you, you can't select for what you can't measure accurately, um, so having some of those tools that help us to j- just do a better job of field testing have been great um, for our our breeding progress. Um, uh, maybe the second. So we talked about the double haploids already. Something that goes kind of hand in hand with double haploids, in in my opinion anyway, is genomic selection, and that's being able to use DNA markers to evaluate new breeding populations before they've ever been tested in the field. Um, So when we're, so traditional, uh, traditional, I guess, (laughs) um, at least since uh, more science has come into breeding, the way we've evaluated, um, so basically it's a a multi-step process for breeding. First, we recombine existing genetics to create new segregating breeding populations. So that's what we talked about. We take parent A, parent B, cross them together, produce a population of progeny from that cross, uh, usually on the order of several hundred uh, progeny. And then we have to evaluate those in the field to see which ones are going to outperform the parents because um, breeding kind of follows Murphy's law that generally whatever bad can go bad happens. And so when you cross parent A by parent B, you're trying to get something that's an improvement over both of them. And probably 95 plus percent of the progeny are not going to be better than those parents Um, So that's our job as breeders, is identifying which lines to cross and then um, evaluating those progeny and and figuring out what those um, small percentage that will actually outperform the parents are. And the way we did that was through replicated field testing. So um, we'd have to produce hybrid seed of those new um, lines on testers. So um, existing parents from the other a heterotic pool, the other gender. So if it's a new female population, we cross it to an existing maybe commercial male line, um, test all those progenies in the field and replicated testing. So um, maybe first year you cross it to one male tester and you planted it six to ten locations across your sales footprint, uh, analyze that data, see which ones outperform the parents, advance some percentage to test the next year where maybe you test it on three male testers instead of one, and you tested at 30 locations instead of 10. Um, So you get a little better at evaluating and even fewer advanced. Um, So in the breeding process, we do that probably traditionally five to seven years of evaluation before something's going to be commercialized and, and sold to a farmer. And so that testing gets pretty expensive, especially when you're talking about testing several hundred progeny out of every breeding cross and As breeders, we want to test as many breeding crosses as we can. So we might be testing um, tens or hundreds, depending on the size of the company and the size of the breeding program, of new uh, crosses a year. So that number of progeny gets to be in the thousands, and replicated trials gets to be in the tens or hundreds of thousands of plots per year. Um, And there's a cost to all of that. And so um, what genomic selection allows is, um, over time, the cost of doing DNA analysis on um, really anything and in, in our in our case it's on corn seed but for ancestry.com it's on human DNA that the cost of that um, of genotyping an individual has really come down over time where um, 20 30 years ago it was super expensive to genotype and so it was relatively uh, cheaper to evaluate hybrids in the field Now that's uh, that genotyping cost comes down uh, every year and so now it's much cheaper to genotype and Um, analyze the genetics of a a new line than it is to evaluate it in the field. And so what genomic selection does is um, it basically uses um, all of the historical data we've collected on relatives. So we have databases with uh, every uh, inbred hybrid that we've tested in the past decade, and that's all in a database. Now we've started genotyping. So we have... um, the genetic information on a lot of those individuals that we can associate with that uh, phenotypic or, uh, and maybe phenotype is the, <laughs> maybe I need to explain that real quick. Uh, so that's basically the, the field measurements we're taking. So yield is a phenotype, plant height, ear height, flowering time. Those are all phenotypes. So just physical measurements we're taking. Um, and so we can associate the, the genotypes and uh, with the phenotypes and then be able to predict um, how a new Um, a new line that we genotype, we can predict what its performance might be based on those associations of genotypes and phenotypes that we've um, developed over the years with our our data. And so um, what that really allows us to do is instead of testing those several hundred progeny in the field, uh, we genotype them, we run a genomic selection model on them. It tells us, it gives us a prediction for each of those progeny, whether they're going to be high performing or low performing, and so we can eliminate a lot of the low performers um, and drop them before we've ever tested them. And then uh, really focus our field testing effort on um, the progeny that are predicted to be higher performing. Uh, and it, so l- it lets us test a lot more genetics in our breeding program um, at the, the same cost. And so that helps us to uh, improve genetic gain when we're able to test more individuals. Yeah, I'll stop, I'll stop there and let you uh, tell me where I uh, confused you or might have no, confused you. No, so, so yeah, so you've got
0: some, some predictive breeding tools now that help you, you know, c- kind of compare genotypes of a lot of different parent, parent lines and, and help you sort of, s- sort of uh, uh, process of elimination, maybe, uh, you know, eliminate some, some, uh, uh, some crosses that statistically are just probably not going to, 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 give you what you're looking for. And so that's, it, it. it it frees up a lot of space and time in the, in the field, right? If, if you're, if you're not spending your time chasing a a, a cross, that's not likely to, uh, to, to pan out very well. Um, and then I think of it maybe as another specific example. And I know this is, you know, you're, you're not, you're not focusing on one trait when you're doing breeding, you're looking for all kinds of different things. But as an example, say you're trying to make sure you've got a disease resistant gene um, in a line that you're working on you know, there was a time that, that, you know, that testing involved, you know, planting all of those, all of those seeds and, and inoculating or infesting all of those plants with that disease to see which ones were tolerant, right? And, and the ones that weren't, obviously you threw out and and the ones that, that, that did have that disease tolerance were, were maybe part of what you advanced. Now, right, we can, we can, uh, we can analyze, like you said, look for DNA markers and we can tell if that disease tolerant gene is in that, is in that seed before we even plant it in the ground. And, and, and so if it's not, we don't even have to plant. it, And that, that frees up a tremendous amount of time and space because you're not, again, you're not chasing your tail on, on, on something that's not even there to begin with. Um, So, so just in, you know, tools that have really, uh, made it, uh, an incredible difference in the efficiency and the speed that that we can improve uh, improve these genetics, um, and and so uh, kind of an, an an interesting thing. And again, a lot of this is uh, you know a lot of this is visual. It's easier to to see and and grasp when it's visual. But you know we used to do uh, at the research farm that uh, that I worked at previously. Uh, we would do some breeding demos and and. Uh, when you would talk about some of these concepts and and show some of the history of of corn Um, you know we had some of those old open pollinated varieties from the early 1900s and and a question i would get from time to time is well you know those those years are are just as big or even bigger than than the modern day hybrids um so you know why what back then we were only yielding 30 bushel per acre today we're yielding you know 200, 220, 240, you know, or more rats. <laughs> so, so, you know, t- talk a little bit about that. You look at, you look at a, a 1900 open pollinated variety and and that year is just as big or bigger than today's hybrids. Why? So, so how is it that we're able to yield so much more?
1: Yeah, good, good question. And that's, uh, it's something we looked at. Yeah. I, I've seen those same types of demos and, um, uh, one thing we've done in, in breeding groups is, um are pretty commonly referred to as era studies, where, um, and there's academic papers where they've done it at universities too. People can go look up the data, but um, basically you take some hybrids that were popular in the 1970s, pop, some that were popular in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and today, and um, you plant all those out. And if you, um, if you plant them all at today's densities, then the modern hybrids win every time. But if you go and evaluate them at different densities and probably if you threw OPVs in there and evaluated them at 15,000 or 20,000 plants per acre, you might not see the yield differences that you see when you're planting them at um, 36,000 plants per acre or yep. whatever your modern density is. Um, at Wiffles, we push densities pretty high, so 36 is on the, the low end for our testing. Um, but uh, I, I know that's still uh, above the, the at least the Illinois average currently um, but but so I, I think um, it answered your question I think a big part of the improvement has not not just been in yield of a single plant but it's been in yield per acre and stress tolerance to be able to push those densities up the planting densities up um, so when you look at yield on an acre basis the components are, of that are the number of ears produced per acre, the uh, number of kernels per ear and then the weight of those kernels. And so there's multiple yield components that go into, uh, into that calculation. And I think the big one when you're comparing OPVs or 1970s hybrids versus today's hybrids is that number of years you can produce per acre. Um, where, yeah, if you plant them at a super low density, you may get just as much yield out of an OPV or a 1970s hybrid as uh, today's hybrid. But if you push that density up to what we're planting today um, at, at 35,000 ish, you're definitely gonna see that benefit. And that's because while we're um, yield has always, and will always, in my opinion, be the driving factor of um, what we're selecting and breeding. Part of that yield has been to select for uh, additional stress tolerance. And that's um, that stress tolerance includes um, crowding um, that you get when you have higher densities. It's better stock um strength which when you push those densities a lot of those older hybrids and opvs are going to start um showing significant lodging a lot more often and earlier than um, the modern hybrids Um, it's better uh, nutrient um, use efficiency so um, when you start to increase the population you have less uh uh, nitrogen per plant so you've got the plants have to be able to use utilize that nitrogen more efficiently to produce grain et cetera, et cetera. Same with water. Um, We have much better drought tolerance in in today's hybrids than we uh, did in the past. Um, As I think you, uh, when we had the last uh, big drought, at least in my neck of the woods in 2012, and people were comparing it to um, the drought prior to that in the 80s, um, people were pretty surprised with how modern hybrids were yielding through the the 2012 drought um, based on their experience in the in the 80s and, and a lot of that's just that uh, improvements for stress tolerance we've had over time
0: yep exactly we've got hybrids that are better able to compete for all of those resources and uh, uh yeah it's not necessarily not necessarily the per plant production that we've really increased although it's to some extent like you said bigger heavier kernels um but yeah it's it's not that the ears are big, are bigger it's that we can get a heck of a lot more ears out there and they can all compete and get the resources they need. Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty impressive when you see some of those demos to to show that genetic gain uh, over the years. Uh, it, it re- really is amazing what what breeding has been able to accomplish. Uh it's a, it's a it's a it's a fascinating uh, fascinating area to look at. Um, yep. So, well yeah, I really uh, really appreciate the 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 insight you provided here Devin. Anything that we haven't really hit on that that you wanted to to kind of mention or or bring up
1: um, i i think we've covered all the all the primary stuff i mean we didn't go we didn't go into biotechnology but uh that's that's not really my uh cup of tea i definitely i mean most of the hybrids sold today have have some of those biotech traits in them but uh um i think growers understand the benefits of those and how those have have worked into the portfolio um, i i guess maybe related to that is um, gene editing might be something that uh, some listeners may have may have heard about. Um, that I, something that I, I would say is maybe a future technology that I could see impacting breeding. Um,
0: so is that, is there anything coming down the pipe that that really excites you? Uh, that you think is is that really what you think is going to be the next really big hit uh, big hitter when it, when it comes to improving genetic gain?
1: I, I so I, I think I think the gene editing has a lot of potential and, and a lot of that depends on how it's regulated and et cetera et cetera but I to me the the, the big benefit of that technology is it's a way to um, be able to cr- create new new variation so um, without without transferring genes from a different species to produce a biotech trait um, I, it allows us for the first time to really go in and and edit the genome of a, a corn plant like you can edit a sentence or a paragraph in microsoft word and uh we're not to the point yet where it's it's quite that <laughs> quite that simple but that's kind of where the science looks like it's headed and so then we were talking about uh um, using disease resistance and using genomic selection to select for disease resistance well today that means First, we have to evaluate all the existing uh, corn varieties and find one that has disease resistance to something like tar spot that's an emerging disease and then identify where that gene is and then use genomic selection to select for it and bring it into our um, current material. But with something like gene editing, then could you, uh, if you identify a gene that's involved with tar spot resistance, you don't necessarily have to go find a resistant allele there, you can maybe create one through gene editing and then bring that into your uh, population. So I, I think I, definitely, I think there's some details to be worked out and the science has to progress. But um, a lot of opportunity there, I think, um, to, to be another tool in the toolbox to um, deal with all the emerging issues we're going to have <laughs> going forward, whether that's um, new diseases, um, Pushing populations even higher and needing better stocks and roots, and um, if rain patterns change and we have to deal with more flooding or more drought, um, any any additional tool that a, a breeder can use is, is going to be of a great help. Um, and then, I, I guess what I what I really appreciate about Wiffles is um, the way that the company has um, decided to implement all these technologies is not using any of them to try to replace uh, field evaluation and breeder evaluation in the field, but how do you fold that into our breeding program and use all these new tools as just that, a tool, not, uh, not the be all end all to, to solve problems, but how each tool can be uh, implemented into a breeding program um, to provide the best products to our, our customers.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, I, I guess that's an important, important call out is that a lot of these new tools we're talking about again they're not necessarily creating uh uh you know better plants or you know better inbreds than we could create before we're just doing it a lot more quickly and a lot more efficiently uh but ultimately it still needs to go out in the field and and it it needs to be evaluated and and uh but those new tools are are allowing us to 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 do a you know a lot more of that uh and not like we said before, chase our tail on, on things that we know aren't going to work uh, anyway. Uh, and, and so it's uh, just, just incredible. The amount of efficiency, the speed of genetic gain we see now, uh, like I said, you know, it used to, there was a time when, when, a, when a farmer bought and planted a, a so-called brand new hybrid, you know, a breeder had probably started working on that thing 10 years ago or more. Um, and, and now with these new tools, where you know, you guys are able to get those new genetics uh, into the market much more quickly uh, and and much more efficiently. So it's just really been a like I said a fascinating uh, a fascinating industry to to watch.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely been fun. To, I I've been a part of it for I guess probably depending on how much grad school you count, fifteen to twenty years in the industry. And I mean, it's made there've been incredible changes just in that amount of time. And then when you start. Um, I, I definitely enjoy delving into the history of it a little bit and just seeing how how the industry has progressed over time is is pretty amazing to look back on. And then to think how it might change 10 or fifteen years in the future is is pretty incredible too. so it's a it's a fun time to be involved in it. and there's it, it's a definitely a fluid, always changing environment to be in, which makes it uh, challenging but also fun.
0: Absolutely. Well, again, Devin, thank you very much. Been been a very uh, interesting discussion. Appreciate your your time and your insight. Um, hopefully, I, I think uh, I think listeners are going to get a lot of a lot of great information out this and and we uh, out of this. And we appreciate you taking your time to share that.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, glad to uh, talk with you again. And uh, wish you the best.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Devin, and thanks to everybody for listening, and we will see you next time on the next episode of the Illinois Agronomy Update. Thank you.